The following episode of Bookmark was first broadcast February 13th, 2024. All right, good afternoon and welcome to Bookmarked on KCSM.org, your true community radio station, and KCSM 104.1 FM where today the book under discussion is The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming by David Wallace Wells. And my guest, uh, coming back on her third or fourth appearance, I think, is uh, Dr. Rebecca Belmetero. Dr. Belmetero teaches film at Texas State and directs the Interdisciplinary Media Studies Program. She's the author of Hollywood Androgyny and Transgender Cinema, co-author of Simone Weil on Politics, Religion, and Society, and co-editor of Star Bodies and the Erotics of Suffering. She also not incidentally serves on the Texas State Board of Education, and she is currently teaching a graduate seminar on environmental film. Is there anything you would like me to add? Uh, I would say that um, I also uh, was the uh, chair of the environmental uh, I guess, environment uh, at Texas State. I am a faculty senator, and um, they decided they would sort of hand off that uh, committee to someone else, so I am not the chair anymore, but I, I still care passionately about uh, what happens uh, at Texas State in terms of uh, environmental studies. Mm-hmm. All right. And I can't, I can't forbear asking you this, even though it's, it's sort of not on the list. If you're teaching environmental film, what's, what's kind of the most important environmental film that you would recommend that our listeners might see? Well, certainly if they've not seen An Inconvenient Truth or An Inconvenient Sequel, mm-hmm. uh, Al Gore was really the person who brought that to the forefront because he was the highest-ranking politician who actually had been educated in environmental studies, and he wanted to pass that on to to other people, and he continues to travel all around the United States, not just in planes, but in vans and any way he can get there, to places to talk to uh, cities like Round Rock. I saw him up in Round Rock talking to the Chamber of Commerce up there and anyone else who was uh, interested about uh, what we need to do about uh, the the problem of global warming and what cities can do. Uh, So he has been really continuing that mission nonstop. Mm. That's that's really admirable. Okay. Uh, David Wallace Wells is an American journalist who writes for New York Magazine and now for the New York Times as well. Uh, This book, in 2017, he wrote this as an essay with the same title, I believe, and it was the most read article in the history of the magazine, Uh, and then he turned it into this book. He's now editor-at-large for New York and covers the climate crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic extensively, and it's pretty much, this is pretty much everything he does, it seems like, you know, from what I was able to find out about him, really. Um... I will try a summary, as I always try to do. Uh, this is well. Actually, this book is not because it is so well organized. It's not hard to. It's there's a lot there, but it's not hard to give an overview. I don't think it was published in 2020. 
It's a comprehensive, extensively researched account of global warming. It explores the causes, the consequences, and our response to it or lack thereof. Uh, the first section is an, uh, there's an overview chapter. The second section, Elements of Chaos, contains 12 chapters, each of which covers a different consequence of global warming. For instance, there's a chapter about rising sea levels, there's a chapter about wildfires, a chapter about air pollution, and other kind of less obvious consequences like war and disease. The third section includes six chapters considering global warming from different perspectives, narrative, economics, technology, politics, history, and I guess for a bit, lack of a better word, philosophy or ethics. Um, and then there's a brief afterward when he discusses how or whether we will deal with it. It's very well written and very readable despite the disturbing and painful subject matter. Uh, should I add, what would you add to the summary? I would say that uh, the opening chapter really summarizes his main point and it begins with a very short sentence. It is worse, much worse than you think. Mm -hmm. And then the incredibly long sentence that is a half page crystallizes what he wants to get across. So I'm going to go ahead and read it if you don't mind. Yeah, do. The slowness of climate change is a fairy tale, perhaps as pernicious as the one that says it isn't happening at all, and comes to us bundled with several others in an anthology of comforting delusions. That global warming is an Arctic saga unfolding remotely. That it is strictly a matter of sea level and coastlines not an enveloping crisis sparing no place and leaving no life undeformed. That it is a crisis of the, quote, natural world, not the human one. That those two are distinct and that we live today somehow outside or beyond or at least very least defended against nature, not inescapably within and literally overwhelmed by it. That wealth can be a reliable shield against the ravages of warming, that the burning of fossil fuels is the price of continued economic growth. That growth and the technology it produces will inevitably engineer a way out of environmental disaster. That there is any analog to the scale or scope of this threat in the long span of human history that might give us confidence in staring it down. Wow. Uh. There's one in the next paragraph, it also begins with a short sentence. Yeah. None of this, this is, is true. true. Uh, yeah, and you, <laughs> I didn't want to start out talking about his style, but since you read that paragraph, I can't, I can't help it. Uh, it, is, it. It is so compellingly readable, uh, and I, I probably shouldn't admit this, but this, this is not a book, the sub, given the subject matter, that I would pick up to read, and certainly not one that, that I would... Enjoy, I guess I did. You do enjoy reading it in some ways, you know. I did. Did you? I mean, just oh, for the style. I, I, I loved reading it, and yeah. it, it's strange. It's almost like watching a horror film where you love the way the director creates horror, mm -hmm. and you're you're excited by it, and you're in awe of the skill uh, that that this author displays in 
in being very conversational in a way. It seems mm-hmm. like he's just sitting there talking to you. He's yeah. a very intelligent person, but he doesn't drown you with uh, pat phrases or uh, scientific jargon. Everything is written in a way that the average ever educated person can understand, and the prose is lovely. It's varied. It's creative. It's almost like poetry. Yeah. I mean, the way he builds up, and I was trying to, I was trying to put my finger on, on what, although there's a lot of variety in the prose, but you just did one thing with those, this long paragraph bracketed by the two short sentences, and the long paragraph, though, is broken down into this sort of list that just goes on and on, you know, and every element kind of overwhelms you. And he, ge- he gives you what I tell my students when I used to teach freshman comp, he gives you an essay map so that he's saying something about what he's going to say and how he's going to organize the whole piece in the order that he does it. And it's done in a very uh, subtle way, but if you look through it, you see, oh, he organized this to make us give us a forecast of where he's going oh, with the entire book. I didn't see that. I have only read this once, and you have, have had a chance to read it twice. How did you find this book in the in the first place, by the way? I was going to ask you why you chose it, but I can just see that by reading the book. But how did you come come across this? Was it part of your, you know, your whole general environmental studies? Or? I had heard him on NPR, and I just went right to... Uh, the web and bought the book mm-hmm. just immediately as soon as I heard him speaking I thought this guy is really smart and he gives an overview and he gives interesting details at the same time mm-hmm. yeah uh, did you had anything anything else you want to bring up about the uh, that first chapter oh which is so of... many things um, <laughs> Let's just give a few of the statistics, because people think of statistics as being boring, but listen to these. Um, we're hearing outside of us the uh, delightful motorcycles that we're blessed with, uh, yeah. with combustion engines. But um, Yeah, I was thinking of that <laughs> was as thinking, a kind of a it's po- ironic yeah. uh, backdrop. Um, so, 86% of all species were dead. Uh we look at the Earth, the Earth has experienced five mass extinctions before the one we're living through now. And each one was so complete, it wiped off the fossil record uh, that it functioned as an evolutionary reset. Uh, the f- planet's phylogenetic tree, first expanding, then collapsing at intervals like a lung. 80% of all species dead. 450 million years ago, 70 million years later, 75% were dead. 125 million later, 96% of species died. 50 million years later, 80% of species. 135 million years after that, 75% again. Unless you're a teenager, you probably read in your high school textbooks that these extinctions were the result of asteroids. In fact, All but the one that killed the dinosaurs involved climate change produced by greenhouse gases. The most notorious was 250 million years ago, and it began when carbon dioxide warmed the planet by 5 degrees Celsius. So it sounds kind of familiar. 
Yeah, I that I had never that that whole paragraph that was something I had never known uh, about that. No. Uh, um, so it was just what would produce all that carbon just the sheer abundance of life and, and carbon dioxide and methane uh, the sheer abundance of life on the planet would just sort of the planet Which sort just of strangled dies, itself dry dies off and then <clears throat> there is already right now fully a third more carbon in the atmosphere than at any point in the last 800,000 years perhaps in as long as 15 million 1.5 million years sorry ah <laughs> There were no humans then, and the oceans were more than 100 feet higher. So if you can kind of picture that scenario occurring dramatically quickly here on Earth. Yeah. Um, he says something he said that I kind of wasn't sure I fully took in and wanted you to comment on was we have all already, this is in, also in the first section, already left behind the narrow window of environmental connect conditions that allowed the human animal to evolve in the first place. But, but not just evolve, that window has enclosed everything we remember as history and value as progress and study as politics. What will it mean to live outside that window, perhaps quite far outside, but the whole idea of we've left behind the narrow window of, in other words, if human life were to start right now, it, would, it wouldn't make it? Is that what he's saying? Well, exactly. Because um, we have figured out enough technologies to kind of keep us going. Uh, but when humans first evolved, there, it was actually a, a fairly um, predictable kind of environment. And it was friendly to the development of animals and plants and you know, food for humans. Uh, it, it was not the kind of weather extremes that we're seeing now. Uh, people could migrate on foot to a place that was uh, tolerable for them, either uh, to escape the cold or to escape the heat. And so the range of weather was uh, not as hostile to humans and um, so they didn't need to have a whole lot of technology to protect themselves from just the environment itself or to figure out how to find food. We have been killing off life on the planet. We are the most uh, invasive and, and aggressive species that uh, the planet has ever seen. He took some criticism, and I didn't find, I didn't find as much as I expected from scientists for overstating uh, that that's in the Wikipedia article about him, and it's remarked that. Mm -hmm. And then when I but when I tried to look into it, it looked like most of them were reacting to his initial article and not necessarily to this book. I mean, he claims. What would you say to someone who says he's exaggerating? I mean, he claims he says while these projections may well prove more extreme than the world we find ourselves inhabiting in in 2100. The chapters that follow represent an honest and fair portrait of the state of our collective understanding of the many multiplying threats that a warming planet poses to us, to all of us presently living on it, and hoping that we may continue to do so in an indefinite and undisturbed way. But the idea that this is an honest and, you know, I mean, what would you say to someone who says that this, this is too extreme, that he's too much of a, you know, 
a Jeremiah and so on. Yes, that he's an alarmist. Yeah. I think that the difference between hearing what he says in a, in a brief little radio piece uh, may make it seem like he's being extreme. But when you look at all of the data that is documented, carefully, scrupulously researched, then you understand that it's not extreme at all. It's shocking. And some of the things that you read, you can't believe that, that this is the case. But it is, and it's all... He, he, he devotes the, the final, let's see, um, from page 355, there's an afterword, and then he has um, his notes go on for uh, another... Uh, 69, yeah, he, he, his notes go on from uh, till 349, and then that's all indexed as well. Yeah. So anyone who tries to catch him out is going to have a hard time saying that he didn't document uh, in well-documented uh, scientific journals uh, research that is... is uh, you know, there's no research that is flawless, but he has the very best. Yeah. He has the very best. Something else that he does that I think make him str- may, that mitigates, that's not the right word, but that provides context for some of the more extreme things is he will often give you a range of predictions from the most dire to the, mi- to the milder. I mean, if, what happens if the temperature rises two degrees by the end of the decade? What if it rises five degrees, and he'll give you a, a range of possibilities that he finds in the literature, which I find very effective because it, instead of dictating to the reader, it sort of opens up to the reader, well, you, you read this, and you think about this, and you kind of decide what, what seems plausible to you, you know? Exactly, because when they do this kind of research, they do give a range. And so uh, it, it's wise to say, let's look at a best-case scenario, and then let's look like at the worst-case scenario so that those are within the range of what they can find from scientific research and from uh, the fossil record and all, all of these different uh, data points. So um, I think it is a very uh, effective rhetorical device because it says... You're the reader. You be in charge of what you're ready yeah. to believe. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so he does this sort of with my my good example of that, and there are many, are talking about the release of methane from the permafrost, which I hadn't even thought about, but apparently the permafrost is organic matter frozen. It thaws, so the organic matter re- releases methane mm-hmm. and, car- and carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm but they don't know how much. Um, the consensus is that a, still that a rapid, sudden release of methane is unlikely. The new research in a case study is a case study in why it is worthwhile to consider and take seriously such unlikely but possible climate risk. When you define anything outside a narrow band of likelihood as irresponsible to consider or talk about or plan for, even unspectacular new research findings can catch you flat-footed. Well, exactly. And, and the thing is, a lot of people don't realize just how rapid and precipitous this warming has been. Uh, he notes that a majority of the burning 
uh, and of warming since uh, since we've started to notice it's happened, 85% of it has been since Seinfeld. Hmm. Uh, so this is this is a short period of time, and he he does something interesting there though because he says the responsibility for this is ours. We hmm. are the generation who has to do something. So our generation is is the one that has to take this seriously and say, we remember when things were different. Right. Because they're only going to get dramatically worse. Yeah. On that note, uh, we are already, and you remember about breaks, you've been my guest often enough. Yes. Uh, that we are already up on our first break. My name is Mason Moore, and you can catch me and my rescue pup, Franklin, every Wednesday at 10 p.m., we're bringing you any significant event from the past week. Album releases, song releases, birthdays, deaths, cultural events, nothing is off limits. We're spanning over 80 years of music history on the weekly show. All genres welcome. Find your next favorite song right next to your old one right here on KZSM, True Community Radio. Bookmarked is brought to you in part by the Whitliff Collections. Now on exhibition... I Pray You Survive, Riding on the Edge. The Whitliff explores how our best writers have personally confronted life or death situations, from war to pandemics, race riots, and murder to create their groundbreaking work. On display now at the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University. For more information, please contact us at thewhitliffcollections.txstate.edu. Welcome back to Bookmarked on K. Yeah, something always happens. Uh, welcome back to Bookmarked on KZSM.org, your true community radio station in KZSM 104.1, uh, where we are suffering the consequences of not having a producer anymore. Um, and, where, and we are talking about The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming by David Wallace Wells uh, with Dr. Rebecca Belmedero, a very compelling book. And I should say before we go on anymore that um, the uh, opinions on this broadcast are those of the host and guest only and not those of kzsm.org or its parent company, SNTXCRA. And we're talking about the second section of the book, Elements of Chaos, where he has a series of chapters on different consequences of global warming with particular emphasis on the not so obvious consequences. And one of them, what we were just talking about, uh, was war. Uh, and you, so you can go back and sort, you were sort of explaining, you know, like how, something about how you, you're returning to the question of how you chose this book. This book, so, yes. Yeah. Um, I first got interested in uh, the problem of environmental uh, catastrophe when uh, my husband and I were in the Peace Corps in Chad uh, in 1973 to 75, uh, Chad is one of the 10 poorest countries in the world, and it's in the mm-hmm. middle of the Sahara Desert. Mm-hmm. And uh, people were, were trying to migrate to places where they could live. And uh, so forced migration is one of the uh, practices of humans to survive that causes uh, countries to feel they're being invaded and it causes them to, to go to war. And certainly there are people who uh, talk about the United States being invaded uh, because they feel threatened. But uh, if, if you've been to a country that is 
uh, one of the poorest countries in the world, you really realize what what uh, desperation is. Yeah. Uh, he talks about uh, population growth and about migration as a result of warming. You know, as you just mentioned, uh, and he he does a good job, I think, of picking up sort of more some more personal things as well in here, um, and he. And I, th- I just thought this was interesting, uh, that should I have children, you know, if, in other words, if, if global warming is happening and the planet is becoming more crowded, the effect on the personal decisions of the consumer class is perhaps a narrow way of thinking about global warming, though it demonstrates a, strange, a strain of strange ascetic pride among the well-to-do uh, the egoism of childbearing is like the egoism of colonizing a country, some novelist wrote. Um, and he doesn't, he, do, he doesn't want to uh, accept that, you know. Uh, what did you think of that? Well, you could, you could argue that he is simply uh, um, not accepting that out of self-interest. Because yeah. obviously, if um, people stop having children it's going to adversely affect the economy because we're not going to have younger workers coming in and, and uh, uh, doing the kind of production that will keep us going as we go into our uh, later years. But I think also that even though he paints a very dire picture, he hasn't given up on the prospect of surviving uh, and at least having yeah. some of humanity survive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think he he doesn't want to to just shrug his shoulders and say, "Oh yeah, young people now don't want to have children because it looks like such a, a bleak future." Mm-hmm. He mentions how th- how this is happening, and if you stop and think, it's it's such a sad thing. But um, he's kind of uh, pushing back against that. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we live. Uh, each new baby arrives in a brand new world, contemplating a whole horizon of possibilities. The perspective is not naive. We live in that world with them, helping make it for them and with them and for ourselves. The next decades are not yet determined. A new timer, begin, timer begins with every birth, measuring how, how much more damage will be done to the planet and the life this child will live on it. Um, so that's, and, and you mentioned that before, that Despite all the the dire and disturbing statistics, uh, there's an element of this. This isn't inevitable, you know. Mm-hmm. That we still have some agency. Absolutely. At one point in the book, he says that what we really have is the possibility of a political solution by electing leaders who will act on what we know is the science. And yeah. that is, is the thing that he's doing in this book, is letting people know enough of the facts for them to actually grasp how dire the situation is and what could be done. Yeah. There are so many solutions. There are so many possibilities, so many things that we could stop doing, so many things that we could start doing. And it just seems that you have to grab people's attention. You have mm-hmm. to make them actually look at it. And then when they do, they, they kind of go, oh, 
maybe we should do something. Maybe the house is on fire and we should get out of the house or we should put some water on the house or do something. I hope so. I mean, this book was, it said it was a bestseller, you know, and it's certainly still selling and still in print. Yeah, he does a good job of, and I had a just one small uh, example of how he shows that the crisis is political, and this is in the chapter about the effects on the availability of fresh, of clean water from global warming. Um, the crisis is political, which is to say not inevitable or necessary or beyond our capacity to fix and therefore functionally elective. That is one reason that it, it is nevertheless harrowing as a climate parallel. An abundant resource, that is water, made scarce through governmental neglect and indifference, bad infrastructure and contamination, careless urbanization and development. There is no need for a water crisis, in other words, but we have one anyway and aren't doing much to address it. And this this highlights how um, it, it, t- it takes me back to my um, graduate class on environmental film because uh, last night we watched the um, documentary who killed the electric car mm-hmm. and so it puts up a bunch of possible culprits mm-hmm. and it, it goes everything from the auto industry uh, general motors politicians uh, it, it, it puts up a lot of different possibilities and it says they're all guilty for killing the electric car when they were first invented because they decided they could make more money if they continued with the kinds of vehicles they were making. And then during that period, um, you could get up to up to $100,000, you could get a, a rebate uh, for having a, a Hummer, uh, but you could only get, I think, $1,000 or so for an electric vehicle. And then eventually, General Motors took all of those electric vehicles that they have that people loved and they squashed them and destroyed them. When was that? In the 70s. They did not want people to know that electric vehicles were a possibility because they thought people would immediately start heading that direction. And they already had the structure to make these big gas-guzzling cars, and so that's why we still needed to have a lot of uh, gas. Illustrating both that that the crisis is in some ways political and also the kind of the the difficulty in isolating a cause and dealing with it. Yes, you know. yes, and, I, and that particular film is is wonderful for that. And it, you know, I mean, there are times that are sort of grimly uh, comedic, mm-hmm. uh, but it's this same idea that he has here that people can make a choice if they're mm-hmm. educated. They can make a choice, and it's a matter of yeah. educating the entire world. And that's and the. And that's what's kind of, that's the, the, sort of the thrust of the whole book, because it does, it educates you and indicates that you have choices. And that's, I think that's one of the things that makes it, as we've mentioned, so readable, is that you feel as you read it, not that, not that you're just being dictated to, but that you, you are being engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think before we get into the the third section of the book, I think I will do another break, and this time I'll remember to turn the microphones back on, I hope. Good idea. On the radio, this is the Sweet Honey Bear Blues on Tuesday at 8 o'clock till 10 o'clock. You've got me, 
giving you what you just didn't know you needed. Bookmarked is brought to you in part by the Whitliff Collections. Subscribe to our email list today and stay in the know about all the great events, exhibitions, and news happening at the finest collection of literary, photography, and music holdings in the Southwest. The Whitliff Collections is free and open to the public. We're located on the seventh floor of the Alkek Library at Texas State University. For more information, please contact us at the Whitliff Collections. .txtate.edu. All right, welcome back to Bookmarked on KZSM.org and KZSM 104.1 FM, your true community radio station, where we are talking about the uninhabitable earth, life after warming, with David Wallace-Wells, with Dr. Rebecca Belmedero. And we are just getting into the third section of the, the book entitled The Climate Kaleidoscope, which is several chapters kind of looking at the at global warming from different perspectives. Uh, and it really, I, I kept thinking about the, that image of the, of the kaleidoscope because he does seem to be holding, exploring certain relationships like the relationship between capitalism and global warming. And so he doesn't say exactly that capitalism causes it, but it depends on how you look at it. And the, and he keeps sort of shifting it around. It makes it um, a rich, a, a rich but not too dense reading. Certainly, fascinating and thought provoking. I mean, what did you, th- what did you think of his choice of the phrase "climate kaleidoscope"? In my mind, what he's talking about is that if you look at the entire globe, the different parts of the globe are all so different, and there's a sense in which they're kind of jumbled together because even within a a poor society, there are people who are rich and in a rich society, there are people who are poor and the way they make their living is so different depending on where they live, if they're in the mountains, if they're near the ocean, uh, if they're on the plains. So I think he he uses that idea of the kaleidoscope to capture the, the different colors and flavors of people and how they're affected by climate change in a negative way uh, in in all of these different locations. Yeah. Uh, so we have, and that's at least, that's only we've we've only isolated a couple of meanings of kaleidoscope, but I think it's a it's a wonderful word for this book because there is so much going on. Um, the first of the kaleidoscope chapters is probably the one that that maybe compelled both of us when we first read this because it's called storytelling and it's about how global warming is depicted in fiction, in film, in TV, things like that. Uh, and he talks about some examples of apocalyptic, uh, I think film in particular, and then he says, what does it mean to be entertained by a fictional apocalypse as we stare down the possibility of a real one? I, I'm reminded of Neil Postman's title, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at what people do with their spare time, they are so engaged with their devices. And they're very often looking at um, 
apocalyptic images yeah. that are uh, fantastic and imaginative. And at the very same time, these things are happening out there in the world. Uh, there are people, uh, in, in, in South Africa, there were nine million people with no water. Uh, there are so many uh, instances of people just uh, migrating for days and days just to find some little tiny bit of food uh, to find shelter. And um, we see that uh, not just in the United States at our border, but at, at borders all over the world. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, but do you... Uh, do you have? Did you have any particular comments or reactions to that chapter? I mean, I ask you in general because you, you're teaching oh, yeah. environmental <laughs> film, and that's the chapter about you know fictional de de depictions of the, of global warming. So well, to go think. back to kind of a theoretical explanation, uh, it 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 follows Freud's, Freud's theories of dreams. That is, you have fantastic dreams to help you work through your real life issues in a way that it kind of protects you from those issues. So it gives you a chance to kind of think through what can you do, who are you going to be, what role are you going to take uh, in, in kind of a, a safe playground. So, you know, a oh. film like uh, The Day After Tomorrow did that for people. People just loved watching that disaster unfold. And then the movie ends with kind of a magical technological solution. But at least it gives people a chance to think what would I do? What would I do if we suddenly went mm -hmm. into a mini ice age in my continent? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's something to then open their minds to the possibility that this could happen. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not all just escapism. It's a chance to kind of mentally play with the idea. Yeah. He says that uh, warming may become not the story, but the setting. The, uh, and I don't know, the scope of the world's transformation may just as quickly eliminate the genre, I mean, of the kind of apocalyptic narrative or movie. Indeed, eliminate any effort to narrativize warming, which could grow too large and too obvious, even for Hollywood. Uh, and as, so as climate change expands across the horizon, and as it begins to seem inescapable tr total, it may cease to be a story and become instead an all-encompassing setting. I don't know, do you think that would happen? I don't know, I was, I was really fascinated by this particular part of his, of his, um, of his book because he's, he's suggesting that we couldn't, we, we, we couldn't have this as an adventure narrative if that's what you're doing all the time. Right. And so it, it, it may be that people will return to historical dramas or, uh, you know, uh, Downton Abbey. Yeah, or his, his, you know. his example is romantic, the, the pop popularity of romantic comedies set in the Depression, in which the Depression is just kind of a given, you know. Yeah, but you, yeah. Have, but you have this comedy. You have a genre yeah, yeah. that helps you escape from yeah. that reality. And, uh, and I think that that's true. We're going to have uh, uh, apocalypse films where the couple uh, is uh, having a romantic uh, drama or, uh, you know, trying to raise their kids or something while they're also trying to escape the apocalypse. 
that's that's a, a disturbing thought. He also says, interestingly, that depictions of global warming have what he calls a villain problem. Now, I have to admit, I don't watch apocalyptic movies, but usually it's something just... The, the thing just kind of happens, right? Oh, uh, yeah, you know. but th- I thought that was another really fascinating point he met because he said, uh, he, I, to quote him, he says, collective action is dramatically a snore. Mm. You know, if you just see a bunch of people working together to accomplish something, it's kind of like, well, ho-hum. It's like mm. a committee meeting or something. <laughs> uh, but um, the hero and villain problem is, is an interesting one because the hero... Uh, has to be somebody who is um, able to uh, inspire people, but um, the villain is, it's also hard to pick out who is going to be right. the villain. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be the factory owner? Is it going to be, uh, I don't know, uh, people who don't recycle? I mean, who is it going to be? It, yeah. it, it's, it, is it, it going to be us? Yeah, Complicity be does us. not make for good drama. <laughs> Modern morality plays need antagonist, and the desire gets stronger when apportioning blame becomes a political necessity, which it surely will. This is a problem for stories both fictional and non, each drawing logic and energy from the other. The natural villains are the oil companies. In fact, a recent survey of movies depicted climate, uh, uh, depicting climate apolog- find the plurality was actually about corporate greed, uh, but the transportation, and then he goes on to say, well, it's not just them, and it's not, you know, so we don't know. Who's the, who's the bad guy? It's, it's all of us. Yeah, yeah. And we certainly don't like that very much. No, no we don't I like don't, that very much. I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to be, I don't want to be responsible, which I'm, I'm sure I probably am like everybody else. Um, the, 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 okay. Uh, a sentence that uh, in the chapter about history stood out for me. We don't have too much time left, and I don't want to. Um, what page is that? I'm on two twenty-three. Um, it's just—it's just again, mostly the way he turns this phrase. The possibility that our grandchildren could be living forever among the ruins of a much wealthier and more peaceful world seems almost inconceivable from the vantage of the present day. So much do we still live within the propaganda of human progress and generational improvement. I love the idea of living within the propaganda of human progress and generational improvement as kind of a, an overall or, or a psychological explanation of you know, why we can't or don't do anything about this. That is... That is um pointing out how people believe that they should be able to capture, if they're Americans, the, the, the American dream. Um, they believe that they should be able to come up with some sort of fantastic technical uh, solution because that's what they've always seen in the movies, in, right. in the narratives. Um, the... Um, the scope of the droughts and famines and refugees, though, will will totally over override that that myth of our own success and our own agency, though. Um, and uh, you know, we've seen that in the fall of great civilizations. Um, 
And, uh, you know, he says that uh, in this case, the Dark Ages would arrive within one generation of the light, Mm -hmm. close enough to touch and share stories and blame. Mm. Yeah. Uh, The... I think we better start talking about the conclusion, which is the anthropic principle. I had to look that up, and I still am not quite sure I understand it. Um, that the possi- that the range of possible observations that could be made about the universe is limited by the fact that the observations could happen only in a universe capable of developing intelligible life. Proponents of the anthropic principle argue that it explains why the universe has the age and fundamental physical constraints necessary to accommodate conscious life. Since if it had been different, we wouldn't have known about it. And it, it seems kind of circular to me, I don't, I don't know, but I think, the, I think he's using it here as, because it does seem to say um, that, that people, that human beings have some sort of agency or some sort of responsibility, which is, I think, what he's trying to emphasize in that mm-hmm. final section. I mean, I don't know yeah. whether you got well, the anthropic principle. I, or not. I, I, I think that this is um, the idea that if you observe something, you 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 can affect it. You have yeah. you, you have an effect on it. And um, oh. when you see, um, he says, no one wants to see disaster coming. But those who look do. That mm-hmm. is, they do see disaster coming. And I love it that he goes back to the person who had uh, identified scientifically heat-trapping gases. And whenever people try to say that these are not caused by humans, I always say, do you know what a heat-trapping gas is? Do you know lists of heat-trapping gases? Carbon dioxide is the most obvious one, but there are all kinds of heat-trapping gases, and human beings have been busy producing them and expelling them into the atmosphere for about the last 100 years or so at an accelerated pace. But he mentions um, that... um, that climate science has arrived at this terrifying conclusion, not casually and not with glee, but by systematically ruling out every alternative explanation for observed warming, even though that observed warming is more or less precisely what would be expected given only the rudimentary understanding of the greenhouse effect advanced by John Tyndall and Eunice Foote in the 1850s when America was reaching its first industrial peak. Yeah. We should, That's, we should have known, but we don't. Uh, and and we should know in looking back that they were right, and that we do this all the time. But it was like with uh, the ozone layer with CFCs. We noticed that there was a hole in the ozone layer, and we got together. The countries of the world said, "Oh, we have to develop a new kind of refrigerant," and they did it. Mm-hmm. And they managed to close most of the hole in the ozone layer by cooperating internationally. It's not as if we've never done this. It's not as if we've never recognized a threat and addressed it and figured out how to solve it for the most part. And his solutions, uh, which I think we should read, right? Yes. Uh, We have all the tools we need today to stop it all. And here's his tools. A carbon tax and the political apparatus to aggressively phase out dirty energy 
a new approach to agricultural practices and a shift away from beef and dairy in the global diet, and public investment in green energy and carbon capture. Yeah, well, there it is. It's, it's that simple. Yeah. And political will, as Al Gore said. The political will. And, and why don't we do it? Okay, uh, one, one last thing that you would like listeners to know about this book. This book is, as, as horrifying as it is, it's an amazing and fun read, and it will ultimately give you hope. If you read all the way to the end, we have a solution. We just need the will to enact it. And, uh, where, and where, would you, where would you think we exercise that, in, besides at the ballot box? Or is that the most the most in our important? speaking? Yeah, in our speaking, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's just like the air that we breathe. We know we have to breathe air to live, and um, so our our speaking will kind of get the herd moving in the right direction, away from the cliff. All right, this that's a good way of putting it. Uh, border, border collie speaking, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, okay, uh, Dr. Rebecca Belmetto, thank you so much for being my guest, and thank you for turning me on to this book. Uh, obviously, we heartily recommend it. Every, everybody go out and buy it uh, right now uh, and read it. Uh, next week, Shadows of the Workhouse by Jennifer Worth, uh, which is one of the books, it's one of the books that inspired uh, Call the Midwife. Speaking of, you, you said you were teaching a class in uh, adaptation to film, mm-hmm. so that'll be interesting. My guest will be Jennifer Cabay, uh, who is uh, a librarian and an Anglophile, and you've been listening to Bookmarked on KZSM 104.1 in San Marcos, Texas, and kzsm.org. And uh, again, I thank you, Rebecca, for being my guest, and uh, I thank you for listening. Thank you for having me.